This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Here with the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Bogner, editorial director and co-founder of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Our guest today is Adam from Rubens Brews in Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, multiple winner of GABF gold medal for their Goza. We're here at the Great American Beer Festival 2017, and uh, you know, you've got uh, great hopes coming up for, uh, for a three-peat in the Goza category. <laughs> Well, it's like poker. You know, you put a hand in and get your fingers crossed, but you can never... There's a lot of luck as well, I think. Sure, sure. So what brought you to... Uh, I mean, you've certainly found some success with the Goza style. Uh, what led you to uh, to even brew the beer? So we go, we go back to our... We're five years old now, and we go back to our third anniversary. Uh, it was a beer uh, we brewed specifically for our third anniversary initially. That was the first ever batch we did. And um, it was just the, the challenge, honestly. So... The first three batches I did at home, so I was working out how to do a, a lacto ferment, uh, um, you know, people call it kettle sours, but like for me it was, is it in a pot, is it in a keg, you know, <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, sure. the home brew, brew level, but like just trying to figure out a, a way of keeping the o- oxygen levels as low as possible to get nice clean um, sourness. Um, First two were not good, uh, so I, I, the cling film method was <laughs> not work. What did you do wrong? <laughs> well, I tried. I tried that cling film method, so like yeah. where you put like cling film over <clears> the right, top, right. And, and that doesn't work at all. And then the second time, I tried to just regularly purge uh, the, my my homebrew kettle. That right, doesn't, that doesn't work. So the, on the third one, I I used I soured in a uh, one of one of the corny my corny cakes. Uh huh. And then you can purge the sure. living daylights out of it, right, and uh, right. there's no oxygen in there. And then that sort of, I then, you know, that's a five barrel, ba- a five gallon batch, and then I scaled it up to a seven barrel, so it's like a thirty to forty time, sure, sure, increase. But it, it is enough. Um, the 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 process is the same. Yeah, it, it's just a little bit technically different. How do you hold temperature on a on a uh, five gallon corny keg? I I had um. I had a, uh, you know, like you can get for, uh, like, uh, big coolers um, where you convert a, a freezer into a cooler. Sure, sure. So I have a, th- a, a, th- a temperature node that will, um, you know, click on and click off. Yeah. And then a wrap, a heating wrap. Okay. So it was actually pretty easy. Um, hmm. It's a lot easier to keep it at a certain temperature and then wrap it with tons of... Um, tons of towels and yeah. other things <laughs> but um it's a lot easier to do that than to keep temperature in in the seven barrel system because you're just relying on thermal mass right you're right. going to pitch in a certain temperature and you know you're going to be dropping down sure and you don't want to turn the the, the burner on because you get stratification and all right and right did you uh you know how did you choose a lactobacillus strain for this i wanted um one that isn't gonna that is a pure Acidifier, not a uh, attenuator, because mm-hmm. you, know, you don't want to create any alcohol in the in, a, in the kettle. And uh, obviously, when you heat up alcohol, you can sure. get some <laughs> explosions. So, I want a nice clean one. And so, fifty three thirty five mm-hmm. uh, white yeast is what 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 I used. Um, and we've 
so going back, so I prop what I what I did is I, I proved to myself at home how I could brew one and then right. use that as a propagator for the commercial batch. Ah. So you know, a five gallon batch, uh, if you get a five gallon propagation from Y yeast or some something like that, it's um, a couple of thousand dollars. Yeah. Whereas you can get, you know, a little vial, you know, spend a day or two and uh, save yourself the vast majority of that <laughs> and prove to yourself that you're doing the process right as well, right. you know, right. yeah, before you waste 190 gallons. And <laughs> right. Yeah. So how, and so now you, uh, in, in the brew house, how, how did you scale that up? You use a, a separate tank now or do you? Uh... No, we, it, it, it uses up the uh, kettle for a couple of days. A couple of days. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. we, we, one thing I did uh, coming from a home brewer to a, commercial brewer like I was trying to figure out trying to know what I didn't know right and one thing I wanted to focus on is um, consistency and I think that's one thing that's got us to where we are is even when we were just brewing 10 barrel batches we're very consistent with them right and one of the ways that we did that we double batched in every fermenter yeah um, so if the first batch came in the gravity slightly high or the mash temp was slightly off we can account. We can adjust for it in the second batch, sure. um, and we've taken that that philosophy all the way through. So now we do between two to four batches, depending on what the beer is into any ferment, into a fermenter. And even with the kettle sours, we'll do two batches um, in, so we mm-hmm. can adjust appropriately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give it more more consistent. It sounds like a lot to uh, you know, given the time that it takes to uh, acidify. Well. Uh, so what we found is uh, it's, it's a very um, reliant based on uh, pitch rate. So uh, we're putting into like 22 barrels now, I think uh, three or four corny keg equivalents. Mm. You know, and if you half that down, you're going to double the length of time it takes to acidify. Okay. Um, those the lacto when you're pitching it. If that's at an ambient temperature close to what it's going to go into, it's uh, a lot a lot happier. <laughs> you can shock it quite extremely if sure. you're if you're going to go in from cold, um, you know, from 38 degrees going into 110, it shocks it, and that takes a lot longer. So we, there is we can we can now get from like four and a half, 4.5 pH down to about 3.3 in 12 to 16 hours. Hmm. You know, and that's. That's from health, healthy bacteria. Right. And we're still running off of that original batch that I brewed at the brewery, <laughs> which was the first batch huh. we ever brewed, and that was the one that first won gold at JVF. So it's like, yeah, I don't want to, so I don't want to a, change quite that. Quite a pedigree to that yeah, yeah. Uh, lactobacillus strain. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just, you know, you mentioned pH. Uh, you know, do you, you measure pH and TA, I imagine, in the yeah. in the beer, and you say 3.3 is your goal pH? That's a... Rather uh, hefty acidity for uh, for Goza. Why uh, why targeted there? Um, TA gets to between like seven and a half to eight. Um, okay. Why target? That's there? interesting because the you know that's a for a three point three pH, but but only a seven to eight mm. TA. There's a you know, bit of a discrepancy there. It's just so the way it's no no no. I, I think that's yeah. the that's the the question. You know, of course, everyone in the world of sour tart and uh, you know and whatnot beer is is facing is that those things don't correlate yeah. necessarily in that one to one manner. And given the the type of acid and the you know that they're creating uh, 
um, they're perceived as different ways, and that pH yep. is not necessarily a, a you know perfect measure of, of uh, the sensory perception of the level of acidity in that beer. And so, seventy-eight is you know kind of midline for a you know for a, uh, a sour beer, and yep. uh, you know we've seen plenty in the 14, 15, 18 range. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you have some residual sugar <laughs> left in the beer to kind of yeah. soften that a little bit. If yeah. uh, you know, if you go to that kind of level, but uh, but seven to eight's a, you know fairly moderate. I know a lot of Berliner Weisses on the very light side, getting that four and five TA range. Uh, but why why seven to eight for the Goza? It's um goes back to balance, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot of science in brewing, but I think the real I, I see science as guardrails. So yeah, if you do this, it's not going to work. You know, that's the science side right. of it. But where where the real fun and the focus for us is is in the art. So uh, by that balance. So uh, you know, I see sour beers similar to like the IBU wars of you right. know, five ten years ago, where hundred plus IBUs was where it was at. Right. right. That didn't taste good to me <laughs> then. And but it, it right. was on a roll. Right. And, uh, you know, some, like in sour beers, you need that balance. Right. So we, we keep the terminal gravity relatively high for the Goza, like two, two Plato. Yeah. So it's not too dry. Yeah. yeah. And then that will offset, you know, the, the pH position and, and uh, salinity as well. You've got to remember, like, when you're adding salinity into any beer, we, we um, uh, use uh, certain, uh, like we add baking soda into our darker beers to play with the pH, but also that gives a little bit more body into the beer, which is what you want for a, a right. darker beer. Um, what you gotta remember when you're adding the extent of salinity into the goza, you're gonna add body in as sure. well. So you gotta you gotta factor all of these sort of more sensory elements right, into right. the recipe. And so you say so so how what is there a specific type of salt that you found that you use for your goza? You are <laughs> you are at a coastal spot there and, yeah, uh, yeah. In Seattle, so well, we go we go a few thousand miles the other way, Florida cell. So we uh, okay. Um, I just think that's got a effervescence, a vibrancy that is um, yeah. You know, it just adds a uh, something extra that sure. that, that uh, sort of all adds up. Same with coriander. So when we first did our first batch, I would go into the local organic store, and uh, they have all the different pots of coriander, and I, I would actually smell each one. Because they oxidize pretty quickly and then get that really musty, right. so you lose the lemon, lemonness, um, lemonness, if that's a word. Um, so what we do now is we actually grind the coriander during the boil, so there's no mm. risk of, uh, of uh, you know, oxidization. Of the, right. The, same with every beer that we use. Um, it's a really interesting point, and I think it's something that I'm hearing more more brewers talk about that. Uh, treating a lot of their spicing in the same way that folks think about coffee that uh you know the more fresh that you get that ground that grind then uh, the higher the quality less oxidation and the more vibrancy you know of that spice flavor um but that that's an interesting but while you're while you're boiling you you grind your coriander okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah the little grinder we got doesn't like it very much no no (laughs) it's overworked (laughs) but (laughs) no that's that's fantastic and so you uh you hold for 12 to 18 hours with your lacto at, uh, you, you mentioned 110 degrees. Yeah. That's, your, yeah, that's your magic temperature. Yeah, with, within a couple of degrees of that. It, sure, it, it, sure. Yeah, I hear the, the range for most, I think, is that 100 to 120 range, and everyone has their own their own special spot where they like to keep it. But. Yeah, there, there might be um, uh, 
I was gonna say selection bias, but that's not the right word. But like your the thermal mass of the of the of of the kettle could impact that. Um, also, where you're selecting, you know, your temperature from could impact that. Like oh. we don't we don't trust uh, our any of our vessels have a thermometer in them, but they're always at the side, right? Yeah. So it's always going to be cooler there than it actually really is in the middle. So makes sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So in addition to the goes, you uh, you mentioned before we, we started talking that uh, you've just recently launched a, a new Pilsner. Yeah. It's an interesting move, and, uh, and we're seeing lots and lots of craft brewers uh, start taking forays into, uh, you know, for a long time, craft beer couldn't do, couldn't get itself any further away from uh, from the Pilsner style, <laughs> given its uh, historical connection to some of the world's biggest brewers. Um, but what led you to, to, to jump into that style, and, uh, you know, one that's notoriously difficult to brew incredibly cleanly and crisply? Yeah. So, um you know, the, our tap room, we have 25 different beers on tap. We actually have technically two breweries. We have a production brewery and a smaller five-barrel system, our original, so we can brew multiple different different styles. Um, and of the, on those 25 different beers, we want, we want people to have enough options when they come in. So there's something light, something dark, something malty, and something uh, uh, hoppy, right, and, and sour now. So there's actually really five different, like, categories. Um, so we've always had in our head from a portfolio perspective in the tap room we want to offer all of these different beers so our distribution option shouldn't be any different right so right. Uh, I would like it if we could go into a bar or, or any account and say are you looking for any style and have that available because I think there's a lot of strength in diversity from a brewery's perspective mm-hmm. also we can keep our, our just just in terms of keeping our own sanity right we don't want to just become an IPA shop uh, uh, we also want to be able to brew lots of different things and um, keeps the team focused and we I think we in our first year we brewed 70 different beer styles wow I've lost count since then how many <laughs> we've done but, but yeah Czech, Czech style Pilsner was was one that we found was very popular in the tap room hmm. so it's like a good sort of sounding board like, does right. this work um, and uh like you said about this, it's a difficult style to brew. So it's part part of the reason why we did the Goza was the challenge. Right? We'd never right. done a, any kettle souring before. And uh, at Pilsner, I, I'm moving more into lagers. I think the industry is moving more into that way. I think Pilsner's in a nice spot because it's a good entry into craft. And it's, it's a good spot to be in as well if you're coming out of the IPA hiatus, right? Right. So I think you've got a, like a, in a nice junction of where beer is... Beer, drinkers are, are coming from or going to um yes, you're right there's still quite a bit of hoppiness in pilsners even though it may not be the first thing that some people think of in those beers but uh it's, it's a nice coming down from if you don't want a right. 100 ipu triple ipa sure <laughs> sure um yeah and some of these pilsners have have more uh, bittering additions on the hot side than uh you know a fair number of uh, ipas these days yeah yeah because you d- we get a lot of isomerization from Whirlpool editions. Yeah. So oftentimes with our IPAs, we are bittering really low amounts. Right. No, knowing we're going to pick up sure. 40, 50 IBUs from a Whirlpool. Interesting. Yeah. So you're totally true. We do bitter a lot more in terms of pounds of hops <laughs> with the Pilsner than we do our IPA. Sure. sure. Even though the IPA is about 50% more IBUs. We'll come back and talk to you about uh, whirlpool isomerization <laughs> later in a little bit here, yeah, but yeah. Uh, um, you know, so so Pilsner, do you uh, ha- yeah, have you um, 
invested in horizontal tanks. Uh, what, what kind of turn time do you get on this? I know it's notoriously a slow beer yep. uh, for for most brewers, given uh, you know the extensive lagering times. But uh, but it's also a beer that brewers themselves tend to be more passionate about than uh, than a lot of other beers. We were at uh, Bierstadt Lagerhaus last night. And it was a virtual who's who of, uh, of the brewing world as everyone sat down to, uh, to drink their Pilsner. Um, you know, and I think that speaks to just how much brewers themselves really love the style. Um, but it does generally involve a significant investment on the brew house side you know, to make that beer. We, um, so we uh, had to buy plate and frame filters. And so we got two, we got a pretty big one and a smaller one for the two different breweries. Right? Um, we don't have horizontal tanks. Um, what, from our sensory analysis, we find from the so our, our fermentation in all beers, we wait until terminal has been reached, then we give it two days, and then we start doing VDK testing. Yeah, um, and only when it's past VDK do we often put into a soft crash to harvest yeast mm-hmm. from. And what we found with uh, Pilsner, if Two and a half to three weeks after VDK passing, that's when it rounds out. Mm. Um, and that, to me, is the impact of the lagering process, right? So it's a little rough up to that point. Mm-hmm. And then at, at that point, and it's con- very consistent, like huh. weirdly so. And it, so it's not, we don't think from the time of the brew day, it's from when it's, when the yeast has essentially done its job and cleared itself up, um, which, you know, often varies by two to three days depending on the strain depending on right you know how many generations it is or how long it was off a beer before or um yeah so that that means we're looking at four and a half to five week turn for it to round out mm-hmm. nicely um uh, we use predominantly german pilsner malt uh, it's a czech style so we use czech sars hops the terrar and hops i there's a massive difference between sars and a a noble in a very commas US grown hop and, and this this beer really shows it out because there's nothing to hide behind right? yeah yeah what are some of those sensory differences that you get from this oh you know this this is more uh, with with US grown hops you always have that like little citrus in the background you know it's <laughs> almost in everything yeah, right? yeah even if it was a derivative or now, are you when you when you say that? Are you getting that in a blind sense, or are you, is there some attachment where, you, if you know you're smelling or, or tasting both well, of those, yeah. in a blind sense? Normally, okay. if I'm yeah. trying somebody else's pilsner lager, yeah, you can tell pretty immediately, yeah, the terrar or the hops that they used, yeah. right? And I think the spiciness goes really well with the breadiness of the malt <laughs> and this, this style. We keep minerality really low. Yeah, I, I don't like similar to IPAs. I don't like when you have that sort of gypsum fied sort of bite at the end you want right. it to be soft and balanced mm-hmm. same thing in pilsners that's why we've gone more of a czech style and that's selfish on my part because right? yeah. <laughs> i i far prefer it when it's rounded and and uh, balanced there's a little minerality but really really pretty low in, in in this this version yeah yeah and yeast strain and approach on that yeah we um we use the same same yeast uh, in all our lagers, um, can't remember the the Y yeast number <laughs> now. I could I could find no, it out no, pretty, pretty quickly, <laughs> but um, it's the it's the one that's very versatile. So yeah. you can brew steam beers with it. Oh. You can uh, so it has a tol- pretty wide tolerance of between. We take it for our our Mexican lager down to fifty, really mm. nice and crisp, and it 
Yeah, and and this beer is at fifty two when we fer- we fermented that. Yeah. Um, if you go up to fifty four, you start getting too much of an ester profile. Okay. So it's pretty sensitive. Huh. You know? Yeah. Interesting. So. You mentioned IPAs earlier and Whirlpool isomerization. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to be a craft brewer today and not make IPAs. Yeah. Uh, certainly in the Pacific Northwest where you are, there's a high demand you know, for IPAs. Yeah. Um, and a you know, relatively specific subset of, uh, of that kind of West Coast style that uh, tends a little more towards the dank and resinous. Uh, where, do you, where do you pin your IPAs or do you play across the field on those? Yeah, we, we do play across the field, so to speak. Um, we... Um, Crikey! So, little story. We we didn't brew a uh, you know a standard American IPA for the first two years that we were open because we had twelve taps and we only had a five barrel brew house. We did imperial IPAs and triple IPAs, but we didn't do a standard IPA because I was I was scared of that becoming seventy percent of what we made. Yeah. Um, and uh, when we got to to expanding and, and making an IPA, um, our, the person who designs our labels, she said, I've got to come up with a name now for this beer because we'd only ever called beers by the style. And uh, my wife and I spent a night thinking about it and then we went for the Britishisms because I was born in the UK, obviously. Um, so Crikey is our like our first IPA and that's about 40% of what we brew as a brewery. And that's more along the West Coast style, you know, very like clear, clear uses Amarillo, Simcoe, Citra, so it brings fruitiness in, but mm-hmm. still has a citrus sort of base. Pretty rounded bitterness. We aim for like 53 IBUs, so it's not not too much um, bitterness. We um, have also recently been um, working on a Crush series, so it's every month we release a new hazy IPA. Oh. So playing with like <laughs> London 3. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a lot of fun. So hot right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you totally takes things in a different different way i think um uh so you don't fall into that purist line of thought that says uh we're never going to make it hazy uh <laughs> there's only only west coast style well you know you know i uh hazy is a byproduct of something else you're trying to do so yeah. if you're trying to make a beer really fruity and 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 really taste really and have a really big nose a uh, fruit forward nose well, you're going to use a very ester-driven yeast strain, which are these British strains right. that we use. You're going to use some of the New World hops, which have really high oil levels um, that are more more on the fruit-forward side. So those two together um, immediately is going to create a lot of polyphenol haze, right? From like period, which means you can't bitter it that much, right? Um, and um, so then the otherwise you're going to have a lot of a lot of yeast bite, like you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so then you have to soften that down, and then well, how are you going to balance that malt, that hot profile with malt profile? Well, caramel doesn't really go very well with these big fruit-forward flavors, so that's where the oats come in. So I, people talk about hazy IPAs because it's an easy descriptor, sure, but sure. it's really starting from trying to be a very fruit-forward IPA, I, I think. Right, right. Yeah. No, I think it's a it's an interesting piece of this. There's a uh, they're much maligned, and uh, there are certainly a number of folks that uh, decry the style because they think it's you know full of yeast haze. And uh, uh, some of the brewers that I've been talking to lately have uh, they're actually 
pulling all of the yeast out of their hazy IPAs specifically because they will only stay hazy if they get all of that yeast out of of the beer. But leaving more yeast into the beer actually decreases the haze and causes it to precipitate out, uh, you know, when it's packaged. Um, So I think there's a that's an interesting and strange misconception on the part of a lot of folks, you know, about the style. You get, um, uh, sure. A lot of people have had this, but you get autolysis in a lot of these beers right. as well, where there's too much, too much reliance on yeast to create that haze. Right. That I mean, over time, obviously, uh, you end up tasting stuff you don't want to taste in them. Um, we we what we do is we've extended a rest time. So so post dry hop, we give the beer up to a week just sitting in the tank mm. just to let everything drop out we don't have a centrifuge so it's right. sort of our, our equivalent at like 33 degrees letting it sit for a good amount of time yeah which is counterintuitive to trying to get the biggest nose that you want right right um, right but we found that that really does let it round out and then the intensity of the dry hop as well is a bit green early on like, right it lets it soft that that soften out as well and mellow so just what we've found over time i uh, i couldn't <laughs> agree with you more on that that uh uh, most of these these beers with those incredibly dramatic, drastic dry hopping regimens come out, uh, you know, upon initial packaging within a couple of days, uh, tasting far too hot with that hops bite and burn. Yeah, you know that bit of that herbal burn, and yeah. uh, you know it's there's a, a sweet spot usually yeah, seven to ten days after that where uh, where I can drink them and, yeah. and, and enjoy it, and I think where those hops pull together into what they're going to be in that beer. Yeah. And I hear that from a number of brewers uh, uh, that, that even they prefer those beers with a little, you know, a little bit of time after packaging. Yeah. And it makes sense to uh, to do it in the tank. Well, even, so. even though it costs you more money in <laughs> tank time uh, while you let it sit there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, um, it's kind of I like... I guess it's that or, or package it and leave it in a cold box for another seven to ten days, which would still take the same amount of time. You'd still have the beer would still be on yeast in right, that case, though, right. and that's what kind of um, it's kind of like uh, having a, a best after date. Like we <laughs> as a brewery don't want to do that ever. Sure, sure, um, sure. I don't want to sell you something and say, "Oh no, don't drink it for 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 a week," because I wouldn't. You yeah, know? It's like, yeah, that's not what we were about. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, and you, I imagine you measure. <laughs> After uh, after the fact, uh, you know you, uh, you know, track how much yeast is left in those beers, and um, you find they clear up pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we do. I think, um, like I said, with that amount of time, that's a lot of time. It really cold for it to drop right, drop right. Um, we we um, we should plate some of them just to see what the yeast count is. We haven't done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we send all of our beers to a third party lab. After we have our own little lab, but we also outsource a lot of a lot of you know spectral photometer work sure, etc sure. so we get actual vdk levels hmm. um and in, in these these beers you, are you i'm sure you've already heard that often you get secondary fermentations at dry hop yeah yeah so the issue with that is not so much the secondary fermentation because you can ma- monitor that you've got to make sure that you don't get a, a diastole pickup as well right right because you can get some vdk coming out of that so we do an additional vdk test on on that beer now after after the dry hop before we crash it because we we essentially dry hop warm yeah get far better extraction <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, isomerization in the whirlpool um you know what point do you, you know, pitch your whirlpool hops is there a certain temperature point that you reach uh you know to you know shoot below that isomerization level and uh 
And when we say isomerization, um, is it actually measurable as isomerized alpha acids, or is that just a perception that you're getting from uh, oxidized alpha acids or some other component that uh, could be adding that perceived bitterness, even though it's not measurable in that pure IBU scale? So if I'm looking at my brewing software and coming up with a recipe, uh, the, the, the brewing software will give me for something like Crikey, like 17 IBUs. Um, but it doesn't take into account correctly the Whirlpool isomerization, which adds uh, up to that 55 level. Um, so when I'm actually working on, on, on recipes, I have to think about the knockout length. You know, uh, we don't generally drop the temperature of uh, the whirlpool uh, is something that we've got on our list of things to do, but then I'll have to take into account the impact of not having that isomerization right, as well. Right. Um, but what, what, so what we've been playing with is I've got a good feeling now, a way of calculating out from any beer what, what our uh, whirlpool addition it will be to what IBUs, it, actual IBUs it does give. And then... Uh, but what I've been doing generally is I, I don't f I feel that the return, like the 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 punch of flavor and aroma from a whirlpool edition is relatively minimal. So what I've been doing generally is taking out whirlpool editions and putting them into the dry hop. So mm. our dry hops are getting a lot bigger, and our whirlpools getting a lot relatively smaller, and that's a, a consistent thing over time. One one thing we do is I'm all. It's, all beer is on a journey, and we've, we're never there. So no recipe is ever locked. <laughs> so every recipe is up for discussion at all times. Um, and there'll be minor, minor tweaks. There might be just process changes, like how we dry hop or something. But um, everything is is always being being looked at, and uh, that's one thing that we've been doing over time, like moving, moving the hops for certain beer later and later. <laughs> Interesting. In, yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I, I think that's an interesting, um, you know, point that you make about continuously tweaking. Um, there are a number of, of breweries out there that don't do that and that lock in a recipe, and that's their recipe, and they uh, they have a brand standard for that and expectation among consumers. Um, but I do think that you today we're starting to see craft beer consumers that have a different mindset around that and that uh, have a relationship to that that beer and that brand. Uh, I also see uh, some, you know, another interesting effect happening, and that's the context that we drink beer in is con in constantly changing. Yep. And so um, the way that you might perceive a brand like that from a brewery, uh, the question exists is, is that brand the perception of the consumer based on where that general consumer is today? And uh, Do you need to move that beer and recipe forward with them? Or do you lock it in time, in which case that perception of your consumer uh, their, their perception of that beer may change over time simply because their context and their palate yes. is changing. Uh, we hear it over and over again. Uh, you know, that beer wasn't the same once they scaled it up and brewed it on this, you know, this bigger system. And it was so much better a couple of years ago when I first had it. Uh, and I keep having to, to remind folks that, uh, you know, don't, that's not the only thing that's changed. The other thing that's changed is your palate has changed because you've had that many more inputs over the last two years. And now you drink this beer and it hits you differently because you, you know, your palate has shifted and changed. Um, you know, what, what's your philosophy around that? I mean, I imagine if you're continually, continuously tweaking 
those recipes, you're also able to kind of move it forward with your own palates and, uh, and, and kind of dial it into the, your own perceptions, and those are going to be changing as well. There's, a, there's another reason why people lock in a recipe is you've got all these hot contracts behind <laughs> it. Right? Sure, sure. And, and to me, if we ever get to a point where we can't change a recipe because we're locked in for any production reason, then we're too big. That's, that's to me, the definition of being too big. Right? Yeah. We, we need to be able to be nimble and be able to change things if we think it will make the beer better. And yeah. that's our job, to make the beer better all the time. Um, uh, and, and like I said, they're, they're very incremental steps, but over a number of years, it, will, it, will, it should help. Um, for, for us, I, I, um, I think there's always... Every, every harvest is different. You know, every hop harvest is different. Sure. I, was, I was selecting in Yakima last last week, or maybe even earlier this week. I can't. I've lost <laughs> track of the days, right? But um, you know, every every time, like what we're seeing is is different crops of different hops every year. The rhizomes are getting a year older, and they're slightly slightly different. Um, so nothing should really stay the same, um, like permanently. Um, the industry is changing a lot and really quickly like even in our short lifetime we've gone through this imperial pale ale obsession that was really brief <laughs> remember that belgian ipas sure were, sure like, really big but for like a really and, short period and of time. no one makes them anymore yeah right. yeah um and then black ipas as well was another one that was yeah was a, um but um i think i think what what my main job at the brewery is is to think about tomorrow and like where are transit going because you know not every new trend is going to stick but i think something like hazy ipa would stick or maybe moving towards a more drinkable ipa mm-hmm. so taking that hop hop addition and moving it later getting more flavor and aroma out i think that is something that's a trend um that um we need to be relevant uh forever we were in this for the long run right? so <laughs> sure we can't sure, just sure. say right this is the beer and, and this is the way it's going to be right um because you're right everybody's on their own journey and you've got to try and feel where they're where they're going otherwise you right. become obsolete in their their journey well, i think it is a it's a, a positive thing for, for craft beer in general that we are focused on flavor now and it's not simply a you know that bitterness equation yeah um you know and i think where we are today with craft beer is also a direct result of, of where the agriculture is. That uh, you know, five or eight years ago, we certainly didn't have as wide access to a lot of these hops uh, and the flavors they produce. Uh, we certainly didn't have uh, widespread use of the techniques to maximize some of those flavors. And so that brewing technique and that advance in technique has kind of marched forward uh, and in lockstep with these developments in agriculture and pushing forwards and, uh, you know, and, and influencing each other. Um, you all are in Seattle and you're just over the mountains mm-hmm. from Yakima where 38,000 acres of American hops are grown. Uh, yeah. uh, how is that proximity and, and, you know, with the access that that affords you, uh, you know, impacted the way that you think about hops and the way that you, uh, you build recipes around them? Um, we're very fortunate to be so close. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's the sure. first thing. Uh, like fresh hop you have some of the cheapest uh, wet hop fresh hop beers yeah. to make since you can simply drive out there and drive back we do we, yeah we, we do yeah so we we did three different wet hop beers this this year which is, which is nice um, uh, one of the experimental farms I I was lucky enough a couple of years ago to walk through and uh, rub a number of the new 
new hops that are in development. And that only came about because we are literally two-hour drive away. Yeah. So the interesting thing about that is, uh, you know, for me, that opened my mind as to some, some of these newer hops coming out, like there was one that was really very, very coconutty. Mm. One that was very, like, woody to the extent it was almost like a barrel. Huh. Right? So it's um, these new flavors and, and, uh, and aromas that can come out of hops are, are far more broad than what we traditionally think about. Um, so that that was that was something that came specifically out of the out of being so close. Um, I, th- I think also this makes selection a lot easier. Uh, we have good relationships with farmers, so we get to understand their process, the impact of the microclimates in the different fields a lot a lot more than you would um, otherwise. Uh, I totally uh, understand the difference in in selection so where you can take a hop um, just based off of the microclimate it was in or when it was picked in the in the harvest cycle right sure so, um, it maybe maybe our learning curve was a bit quicker than it would have been if we were a few thousand miles away right um, but um, you know I think most of the good brewers understand all of that anyway. right right but you know we, we're, we're fortunate because because we are so close and we can um, there are there are some some uh, hops, and I didn't get a chance to do it this year. But like the proximity is very helpful. That they don't uh, they don't um, do selection for. Mm-hmm. So what I could do is when they're harvesting, I can go and actually uh, rub the different lots that have been picked that day <laughs> and pick the one that I want oh, from that goodness. day. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know that again. If you're not close, right, right. As luck would have it, I was out of town, so I was not close oh. this year. But, but future years, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. And I I was just up in Yakima at the first week of harvest this year and got to got to watch uh, all of that starting up, and it was a fascinating process for me to uh, to get up close with the, the farmers. And uh, um, it is amazing the difference of the terroir, even within you know certain elements of of the different valleys and the yeah. lower valley and upper valley and. You know, yeah. Toppenish versus Moxie, and uh, yeah. um, quite a bit of difference just in the the you know way that the the vines were growing. Um, it seemed like the lower valley this year had a little more uh, robust growth than the than the Moxie and the upper valley area. But and then if you, it's just so exacerbated, if you take that to the UK or Germany, yeah, like some stra- some hop varietals are being grown in multiple different countries, right, and. and They'll be fundamentally different hops. You know. Yeah, it really would be. On that sense, uh, the uh, the concept of uh, talking about the the terroir of those hops or the farms where they're originating from is something that I'm just seeing creeping into craft beer right now. Uh, there was a craft brewery up in New York that uh, mentioned the farm that they uh, you know uh, obtained hops from for one of their new beers. And uh, you know, have you have you done anything like that and uh, and really talked about uh, the where these hops are coming from and how that terroir impacts uh, the flavor of the beer we haven't um no in in uh we haven't done that specifically um we we've uh in in the northwest there's a there's a big as as in a lot of the country i see it a lot more around malt yeah so locally grown locally malted uh barley is uh Seems to be a lot more of a push rather than right. the, hot, the hot profile. Um, my 
my thing is um, I want to use the the I'm 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 trying to come up with a recipe for what I want it to the beer to taste like in the glass and what I, how right. I want it to be in the glass. And I want to use any weapon at my disposal <laughs> to make that sure, as close to sure, my, sure. my goal as possible. Um, if that means we can go local with something, then that's exactly what we'll do. Right. But like, you know, German Pilsner malt, to me, there's no equivalent of, you know. Um, so we end up having in the brewery multiple different Pilsner malts, depending on the style that we want to brew. Uh, we might cut some Pilsner malt. Uh, German Pilsner malt with U.S. Pilsner just to reduce that breadiness to let some hops shine through it sometimes as well. Right. Um, so uh, we um, haven't done. We've we've done more like locally focused like um, ingredients around coffee actually. Yeah. Uh, our local roaster that we work with, um, we've done some really really good stuff with them, and they've been great to work with. They're maybe a mile away from the brewery and uh, right. And they they roast really light, so that fruit forward uh, sure. note works well in beer, you know. Um, so that's where we've tended to focus on locally sourced ingredients so far. Have you worked with any local craft maltsters? I'm not sure what uh, what exists for that up in your area. So Skagit Valley Malt okay. is is one of um, is the I think the biggest one in the north, certainly in Washington State, and um, we've. We've worked with them on one of our hazy IPAs. Actually. Oh, wow! Because <laughs> uh, uh, you know, one of the tricks I think in 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 that style is you've got a very uh, you haven't got too much malt complexity, in right? There. So you have to get that in, in in certain ways. So like using a locally malted Pilsner malt added a little bit of uh, I shouldn't say quite a little bit of something else into that beer that you wouldn't have otherwise. Right, it adds another layer of flavor. In yeah, so we worked with them. That's relatively recently just a couple of months ago yeah and uh any issues in in dialing in recipes or uh, or their their data and their malt profiles are, are pretty clear and uh uh everything converts the way you expect it to i know that's a, a something that all the craft monsters are, are really pushing for to to uh, understand the diastatic power of those malts and make sure that they perform in a brew house the way that uh, brewers expect them to yeah we even with our larger suppliers we get variability interesting so um so it's you have to i think sometimes we as brewers forget this is a agricultural process right we sort of are thinking we're buying this and it will work every time but you have you know we have to get the lot analysis understand for each each lot of malt like you know are there major differences that we need to account for on on this lot um and uh we've only used uh locally malted grain as a layering of flavor, not as the base. So I haven't gone all that far, but right. I think what we could do is use our smaller system to start testing that sort yeah. of stuff, like what efficiency we get, you know, what protein is still comes through in the beer and whether there's clarity issues. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's none of those problems, but uh, <laughs> I'd prefer to try it on a smaller batch before we right. scale right. And, and understand the lab results that they can give us that we can make sure that we can get consistency on an ongoing basis. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned that part of your uh, the part of your job is understanding where beer is going and where it's going to be in six months or in a few years, so that you can play that long game. Yeah. Um, what are some of those trends that you see and uh, and that you're keeping an eye on and that you're you're working towards as uh, you know as these things shift forward? 
Well, there's no coincidence that we just launched our Pilsner in Cairns recently. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's definitely an area of, of, of growth for the industry. I think, um, I honestly think the hazy IPA, in inverted commas, that that is, a, is something here to stay. I think, right. I think it adds something unique to, to, to beer that wasn't there before. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely around. I, I think um, speaking to a brewery out of the UK, they think that it's more than just Pilsner. It's more movement towards different types of lager and lager-esque beers. Right. Um, which I, I, you can see that sprouting. I don't know if that will grab and, and really grow a lot. Yeah. But, you know, um, you know we've seen a, a deterioration of pumpkin beers, for example, <laughs> right? Um but I think that's because that season has been overwhelmed. Well, overwhelmed might not be the right word, but sort of replaced with fresh hop beers. Yeah. And uh, certainly in the Northwest. And um, also like Mertzen or, or Fest beer. Right. right. So, um, which I, I wonder if that's part of that expanding of the lager sort of genre. Right. Is, is, is part of that. I think um, there's a, a growing attachment to uh, understanding breweries and so tap rooms are increasingly more popular i think that can only continue um i think uh, there's a more of a focus focus towards freshness so people really understand how beers drop off over right. time cans are great because you can get the do level really low lower than we can in a bottle yeah and, and um you know you've got no um you know no a lot. It's a far better container, generally. Right, right. And um, we're seeing far better longevity of our our IPAs. What would you cans. all can on? So we have a wild goose. Okay. Two fifty. Two fifty. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what we're finding, even with that, we've Frankenstein'd it. Right? Yeah. So we've got all these pieces on that aren't out of the you know extra extra CO two purging. And right. We've taken parts of it off and changed them around to mm. like. Uh, reduce the do so it's like a even that is a work in pro- progress right, right? um what y- kind of do levels do you get in your cans now so if we um so we if we basically run it through the do meter and just just shaken so i haven't calculated this back into total um but that's just a number that we can quickly do when we're running right we can get down to f- like on the last run, I, so when I, the day I flew out here, I went and checked what, what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, one, we, uh, four fill heads, one was at 60, and the other three were at 40. Oh. Which um, is pretty low. Those for, are really aggressive numbers yeah. for, uh, you know, for a, a, a canner yeah. on that kind of level. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, a great team that is really sure. focused on, on it. And again, it's similar with with the beers right everything is open and, and, and for discussion and right. um, we've spent a lot of time working on that and um, dialing it in and and some of the things are like uh, counterintuitive so to get a better DO level you have to fill a slightly lower level that um, not that it's less than 12 ounces but like if you 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 might think that you want to fill to the brim, yeah, right, and that will reduce the do because there's no space for it, right. But actually, what happens there is um, you you can't fob out the remaining headspace hmm. as easy. So you really want to get it's kind of kind of weird, but you want to get a nice head that's really tight and thick. Hmm. If it's too loose, there's too much oxygen in there. But if it's tight and thick, then it's normally full of CO two. Yeah. So it's a lot. It's kind of weird, but 
getting low DO levels in the canning line is all about the way that the head forms on the can before the lid goes on. Interesting. Kind of, yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought that, but um, yeah. Yeah. How'd you come to that? Uh, I mean, was there some trial and error? And uh, Spe- speaking to lots of people in the community, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild Goose are great to support yeah. us as well, generally. Um, and there's also variability between the different fill heads, so having sure. to work out why that is, and right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what are your big hopes for the Great American Beer Festival? Oh, um, we. Um, we're pouring five beers, you know. I hope, and we're also at paired this year, actually. Oh. So that's going to be fun. Yeah. So it'd be interesting. I've never done paired before, so it'd be interesting to see um, how we do there. We got one of our hazy IPAs there, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a Nelson, Nelson uh, Savon Hop Forward IPA. Um, so that that will be that will be fun to see. And then, um, you know, I, I like I like uh, the competition to like poker, right? So right. you put a good hand in, but it's there's a lot of variability. And this year, I think we have put a, a good hand in. We went through all of our beers that we submitted just before I left, and they're all strong. A couple are really strong. We did a we got the two breweries, so we did a couple of pro ams this year. Yeah, and uh, the Washington Beer Awards, we won the gold medal with one of the pro ams. It was a saison that was really nice. Um, and then we've also got an IPA that um, has worked out really well using Waiiti, which is a hop that we hadn't used hmm. before. It's really quite hard to get in decent amount. Waiiti? Yeah, Waiiti, yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, Waiiti, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> you uh, prepare your entries in any special way? Is there, uh, I know some breweries have a very um, uh, elaborate system <laughs> for uh, for bottling their samples that they send for the competition? No, long purges. Yeah. You know, ox- oxygen is the bane of our existence. Um, yeah. We um, now what we do is uh, we plan the uh, brew schedule to try and align with the fresher, like the hoppier beers being ready the day that we have to ship them. We normally give ourselves a day or two wiggle room, but um, we that's that's really the only thing we do. Yeah. Is the th- and and the interesting thing is uh, you're brewing a beer not to be tasted like when it's brewed. It's to be. Re- how does it taste in six weeks' time? Yeah, and, and that's the fundamental difference with all of this. That it takes a while to sort of figure out that. Right. Okay. So how do how do I brew a beer that tastes good in six weeks' time? Not necessarily straight away. It's um, right. It's kind of an oxymoron almost, right? Right. You, you normally want to make a beer that tastes great straight away. Not <laughs> it's like Wayne Gretzky said: you're skating to where the puck's going to be instead yeah. of uh, yeah. 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 yeah yeah. Well, that's an interesting challenge. Well, best of luck Thank with the you. competition this Thanks. year. Uh, thank you, Adam thank from you. Rubens Brew, thank you uh, Seattle, time. Washington. Thanks for talking to us about brewing. You're in the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Once again, host Jamie Bogner. Uh, if you want to read more, uh, beerandbrewing.com is the website. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at, at craftbeerbrew. And check out Rubens Brews. And uh, where can they find you, Adam? Yeah, uh, rubensbrews.com. Rubensbrews.com. Yeah. yeah. What states are you distributed to? So we're northwest, so uh, Washington, northern Idaho, and northern Oregon, so the Portland area. And if they're not distributed in your area, then find a friend in the area that can uh, <laughs> trade and ship you some. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank today. you. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com. Find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.